This is an ABC podcast. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. It's great to be with you once again. And welcome to a conversation this week about an 18th century political philosopher whose ideas and insights are generally agreed to be highly relevant to the present day. But exactly which of those ideas are relevant and why is the subject of a great deal of debate. Edmund Burke was born in 1729 and he died in 1797, which means he was a contemporary of some of the greatest thinkers of the European Enlightenment. But Burke's attitude to philosophy was a little ambivalent. He was a very practical man and he didn't have much time for abstract conceptualising or grand metaphysical systems. Burke was a member of the British Parliament and he was a great reformer. But as we're about to hear, he wasn't a revolutionary. In fact, he's often been called the founder of modern political conservatism. And that's a catchy title that doesn't really do him justice. Well, my guest this week is Jack Jacobs. Jack is based in Adelaide and he's a writer currently working on the theory and practice of reform leadership. He's also the host of the podcast Beaconsfield, where he talks with leading political thinkers and practitioners about institutional reform. And it's all very much in the spirit of Edmund Burke. Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I want to begin this with just an observation about Edmund Burke that doesn't really have much bearing on what we're going to be talking about, but I think it's worth mentioning for the sake of the audience, anyone who maybe hasn't read Burke, that he's an incredible writer. He's he's like the Jane Austen of political philosophy. The rhetorical elegance and the way that he just unspools a sentence is a, a thing of great beauty. Are you a, a particular admirer of that style? Well, well absolutely, David. I think... Um... Burke started off his life wanting to be a writer. In fact, for most of his life, he thought of himself as a man of letters first and a politician second. Um, he was a great uh, engager with, with philosophy, with history, but particularly with literature. And his whole life, he had this kind of deep love for poetry and writing. So I think it was William Hazlitt who said that in Burke's hands, politics became poetry. And I think that's absolutely true. It's part of why he's compelling. It's part of why he's dissuasive. But it also helps explain how Burke thinks in the activity or through the activity of writing, which is partly what makes him such an original and powerful political thinker. Yeah, and of course, he took style and and aesthetics very seriously, which is perhaps a a conversation for another time. But I want to begin here with Burke's conservatism, because he's often been called the, the founder of modern conservatism. And that's a little strange if you look at a thumbnail sketch of the biography because he didn't have a typical establishment conservative family background. Uh, During the course of his career, he certainly championed some progressive causes. Tell me about those. Sure, yeah. Well, Well, Burke was born in Dublin in 1730 into a mixed Irish family. His father was an Irish Protestant and his mother was an Irish Catholic. Um, He was born into the professional classes, so he was of middling station, to use his language. Um, and his father wanted him to be a lawyer. But as I said just previously, Burke wanted to be a writer. And that kind of writer's eye made him a, uh, keenly aware to the injustices that existed in the island of his time, particularly against Irish Catholics, um, of which his ancestry half hailed. After being a writer in London, abandoning his legal studies around the early 1750s, um, Burke then enters Parliament in 1765 as a member of the Rockingham Whigs. And the Rockingham Whigs at the time in the English House of Commons were actually the progressive faction of politics opposed to the Tories. Um, The Tories had supported the Crown um, during the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and the Whigs were those who actually tried to hold executive 
in the executive and its encroachment and abuse of power responsible to parliament. Um, so Burke thought of himself as a progressive. He committed himself to various causes throughout his life. The first was the cause of the American revolutionaries, um, who he felt had been betrayed by the English under the empire. Um, Burke was also a champion of Irish Catholic rights. That was a personal cause, as his family background suggests. Um, he was also one of the first members of the English House of Commons to draft a gradual abolition of the slave trade in 1780. Um, and he was, in his view, um, the greatest proponent and critic of the British East India Company in India. That is to say, a great critic um, of the abusive power under the imperial guise in India. So these causes are what established Burke as a progressive thinker. It was only when the French Revolution happened in 1789 and when Burke wrote his book about that event called Reflections on the Revolution in France in November of 1790 that people from within his own reformist circle started to think of him as a reactionary conservative for his opposition to the revolution. But my view is that Burke's opposition to that French Revolution is entirely consistent with the principles of politics and morality that guided him on his early progressive causes. But when you say that the principles he invokes in reflections on the revolution in France are consistent with his Whiggish progressive politics, at the same time, people who consider Burke to be an exemplary conservative refer to that same text. They look at the reflections and they see principles there that they consider to be foundational to modern conservatism. How do you account for that? Sure. Well, it's uh, yeah. There have always been left and right Burkins, and it often depends upon what part of Burke's life and writings you look at. Um, those who see Burke as the founder of modern conservatism tend to look just at reflections on the revolution in France, because it is, in many ways, a conservative text. Burke's central point in that book is that revolution is a bad thing for trying to address societal injustices and problems. He thinks that revolution just makes the situation worse and uses three conservative principles to really back up that claim. I can walk you through them now. The first is that Burke has this vision of society or this conception of society to save in a better way um, as this kind of organic evolutionary product. He thinks it's a contrivance of human wisdom to provide for human wants. Um, he thinks that change proceeds in an evolutionary way, that our institutions shape what he calls our second nature, and that human beings are therefore both imperfectible but also malleable according to their relationship with institutions. He thinks, therefore, that institutions ought to be, as a default, respected um, for the very fact that they have survived the test of experience and come to actually serve human beings and society in a way that makes the whole experience of human life better and easier to live. That does not mean that Burke, however, is anti-change. He sees that change is necessary to the conservation and continuation of institutions. He says that a state without the means of some change is without the means of its conservation. And particularly, one of the reasons that Burke says that is that he has this vision of the human being as a creature of feeling, bound to each other and to society by emotions, by affections, indeed by love. And he thinks that by participating in what he calls little platoons, which are these kind of small groupings of community life, our families, our social relationships, we grow in our capacity to love our institutions and thus in our desire to reform them and suit them to modern circumstances. So when those two principles come together, Burke then develops this distaste of revolution, particularly when it is based upon theoretical principles. Um, what he sees happening in 1789 in France is that he thinks a whole host of French philosophers 
have built up a beautiful intellectual picture of what the rights of man ought to be. And he believes that they then take these abstract rights, these metaphysical speculations, to use his language, and then assert them on French society by, by trying to break down all the existing institutions, like the courts, the law, and the monarchy, and rebuild them on the basis of those theoretical principles. Burke thinks that, number one, that's not a pragmatic move because it removes the capacity of reforming those actual institutions as they exist. But he also thinks it misunderstands the nature of the human being as an effective creature, um, a creature that relates to institutions based upon trust, habit, and history, not on the basis of rationality or on, on the basis of theory. So Burke's critique of revolution is really a defense of reform. He seems to have a typically conservative pessimism, though, when it comes to the notion of human perfectibility and, and the, the possibility of creating any sort of ideal society. I guess this is part of his you know, the bone that he has to pick with the French revolutionaries. And this is grounded in, in a, a deep scepticism with regard to human reason. But, of course, he, he's also living in what we now call the Age of Enlightenment, with the European Enlightenment being the, the great engine of a, a new and, and, in some ways, utopian rationalism. Does it make sense to call Burke an Enlightenment philosopher in anything but a strictly historical sense, like that's just when he happened to be alive? Burke's an Enlightenment figure in two ways, I think. The first is that, in an historical sense, he does belong to the Enlightenment milieu of his day. You know, the London of the 1760s and 70s um, and 80s that he belongs to is an Enlightenment uh, town. Um, Burke is surrounded by the great Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. He corresponds with Adam Smith and with David Hume. And he's very close friends on the English side with Dr. Samuel Johnson and other Irish figures too, like Oliver Goldsmith. Uh, he has many thoughts in common with those of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, he's very interested in the science of man, um, in man's nature. And as I just said before, he has this, this picture of the human being as a creature of feeling and a creature of habit and prejudice driven to moral life essentially by emotional motivations. Um, so in that sense, he belongs to, or is rather a kindred spirit of the Scottish Enlightenment. There's also a second sense, a subtler sense in which I think Burke is partly an Enlightenment thinker. Um, that is on, in terms of his conception of God. Burke was never an arch conservative about religion. He thought that religion had an essential role to play in society in offering us a kind of symbol-like path through to the good life. He thought that religion could offer us meaning, but that it was essentially a human artifact that had evolved like any other institution to try and enrich our lives. And he thought that were we to live by religion, be it Christianity or even Islam when he's talking about India, um, that it would actually elevate our moral lives. But he says himself that he's a Christian much from conviction, but more from affection. Um, I think that we, when we read Burke, he actually has an idea of the good, an idea of decency, of respect, of kindness, of duty that is independent to an idea of God. And in that sense, um, his faith in human nature as this kind of customary, reasonless condition of community and human feeling that is rooted in trust and one's local attachments is really partly a consequence of his, of his immersion in this Enlightenment era. I think it's partly a consequence of his engagement with figures and thinkers like David Hume. Um, but of course, Burke is not an Enlightenment philosopher in another, in another two ways. Um, the first is that he is a figure of what Isaiah Berlin, Sir Isaiah Berlin, thought of as the counter-Enlightenment. Um, Burke is a precursor of the Romantics, right? Um, in the later century, the 19th century, Hazlitt, Coleridge, um, Shelley, Byron, Wordsworth will all read him 
and they will all criticize his stance on the French Revolution. They will think that it is a betrayal, his criticism of the revolution, of Burke's lifelong commitment to liberty. So they're upset with him. But at the same time, they deeply admire and seek to emulate his great witness of feeling. You know, Burke is the defender of what he calls untaught feelings, of the unbought grace of life. Um, his entire approach to thinking about society and politics is emotive, and it is at the core of his defense of tradition, of custom, um, of human relationships, indeed of love, as a guiding force in human politics. Um, and that romantic outlook, which he would not have recognized as so, but which his later readers certainly did recognize as so, I think puts him slightly out of step with the major currents of the Enlightenment in terms of being this cold and naked, shivering light of reason, as he describes it. Um, and, and the final sense in which Burke is not an Enlightenment thinker is that he's not only writing and thinking. Um, you know, Burke is, in his words, a philosopher in action. Um, he has almost 30 years um, of experience as a practicing politician in the English House of Commons by the time that he dies in 1797. Um, and so he's deeply skeptical of the ability of metaphysical um, ideas, of philosophy to act as a worthwhile guide in the realm of human action. He thinks that society and politics is a dense medium, to use his language, and that you need to have a broad-ranging and deep engagement um, with human affairs, a sense of human complexity and the limits of reform, in order to actually think about morality in an effective and meaningful way. And in that sense, being a philosopher in action puts him slightly out of step with some of the Enlightenment thinkers from France, for example, people like Rousseau, um, whom he admires for his originality, but of whom he's still a great critic um, for the revolutionary thoughts that, that, that stem from his pen. Yeah, the philosopher in action thing is interesting because in some sense he strikes me as an anti-philosopher. You know, he's he's deeply practical. He's he's famously averse to making consequential decisions based on what he considers to be abstract principles. There's a nice passage in the Reflections where he writes, and I'll, I'll quote him here, what is the use of discussing a man's abstract right to food or medicine? The question is upon the method of procuring and administering them. In that deliberation, I shall always advise to call in the aid of the farmer and the physician rather than the professor of metaphysics. I love that. But there's a, a question there about rights, the rights of man being one of the pillars of enlightenment humanism. What was Burke's position on the moral standing of what today we would call human rights? Yeah, this is really, really important. And I think this is a part of Burke's thinking that is, is deeply misunderstood in the wider culture. Um, Burke was a great proponent of human rights. Um, he dedicates his entire life through the progressive causes that I mentioned, his stance trying to support the American colonists, his stance um, on the gradual abolition of the slave trade, and particularly his stance on Ireland and on India. Um, the difference is that Burke believed that human rights need to be secured, affirmed, and procured from within an institutional framework on the ground that will actually meaningfully protect them um, and actually change the lives of ordinary and common people on the ground. Um, he's a critic in France of what he sees as the metaphysical rendition of human rights. That is to say, philosophers trying to create a coherent intellectual picture, a perfect intellectual picture, that is actually out of step with what you can actually achieve and put into practice for people's lives here and now. Um, so Burke is a great critic of a theoretical reconstruction of human rights that is not actually attentive to the ways in which real and existing institutions might be updated and improved to secure those rights. That is why he talks about um, turning to the physician and turning to the farmer and trying to procuring and administer human rights rather than to the metaphysician, who is more interested in constructing, to borrow Wittgenstein's language, you know, castles in the sky, 
rather than actually changing the experience of human beings on the ground. Um, there's another element here as well. Um, Burke does not think that rights can exist without duties. Um, he thinks that rights must always have a correspondent duty and that if we are to exist in a society, if we are to be part of a civilization, we must be deeply conscious of the duties we owe to other human beings by virtue of reliving in relationship to them. Um, he thinks, for example, that one of the first things we need to be conscious of in society is that no man must or can be a judge in his own cause. None of us have a right to judge our own cause. And he thinks that the French revolutionists, in trying to assert this language of a theoretical rights framework, are essentially trying to hold themselves accountable to nothing but their own intellectual inventions. And he thinks that's deeply dangerous um, because it means that in practice, um, they are able to assault existing institutions, existing opposite options for reform by declaring their language of eternal and theoretical human rights to always be overarching, to always be superseding, when in fact it's about working from within those frameworks to actually address injustices on the ground. And Burke doesn't just say that, he does it. Um, that is why he's a reformer in the House of Commons on America, Ireland, India, you name it. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and this week I'm talking with writer and podcaster Jack Jacobs about the 18th century British parliamentarian and political philosopher Edmund Burke. Let's talk more about Burke the reformer, particularly the Burke who is highly relevant to the modern challenge of institutional reform. What did Burke have to say about the importance of institutions and about our relationship with institutions? I guess that's what I'm getting at here. There's a sort of a, an organic relationship there, isn't there, that he, that he sees? Yeah, he thought that institutions were reflections of us. I mean, they were human contrivances of wisdom to provide for human wants. Um, he thought that institutions, therefore, had an opportunity to offset our bad tendencies. Right? If the human being is a malleable creature, um, it's our responsibility to ensure that our institutions are restraining us where necessary and redirecting our energies, our potential curiosities, our potential for despotism and tyranny in a healthy way to help us live in society and community with each other. So Burke thought that our relationship to institutions was deeply historical. He thought it was affective, um, to, to use the word in the sense of an emotional relationship, um, and that he said, for example, that we ought to approach institutional reform and our institutions as if we were a child approaching a wounded father, that is with a degree of care, with a degree of love, um, but also with a sense that we had to be careful about how we approach the thing that we were trying to help get back up off the ground. Um, and so he's a sense of, of the relationship between human beings and institutions is deeply personal and rather strange, actually. Um, when you situate it in the context of the wider enlightenment, um, it's not at all rational. And I think that this very much has to do with Burke's own relationship to thinking about the English constitution, right? And you've got to remember that Burke, in his own view, was a novus homo, right? He was, um, he was an upstart Irish, um, half Catholic, half Irish Protestant individual who enters the English House of Commons as, and is forever considered as an outsider. But he develops this deep relationship with the ideals of the English constitution as this unwritten, um, set of scriptures or sacred artifacts that really puts the restraint of arbitrary power at its centre. And he starts to see himself as a custodian of that tradition, a custodian of that imperative, of a sense of a British liberty that is actually afraid 
of abuses of power because it's a choice of inheritance. Um, it's an institution that he chooses to become responsible for. And so I think much of his thinking about institutions and our relationship to them, the necessity to reform them so as to conserve them and actually affirm our love for them, derives in part from his own relationship with the English constitution and his own status as an outsider in English society. Well, the, the importance of the English constitution brings us to one of the institutions that Burke was very energetically committed to trying to reform, which was the British East India Company. This was a, a huge private trading company that was more like a state. I mean, it, it, it ruled large areas of India and Southeast Asia. It had its own law enforcement administration, had its own army. In Burke's day, it had become corrupt and abusive. What was going on there? What was the nature of that corruption? Sure, well, Burke called the East India Company a state in the disguise of a merchant. And essentially what had happened throughout the late 18th century, from 1757 really onwards, was that this company um, had been working with and undermining existing Indian princes on the continent to gradually take over first economic and then political control of the subcontinent. Um, it was a gradual encroachment that developed into the system of arbitrary power in which unbridled markets had been introduced into India. Existing social relationships, laws, customs and traditions of an Indian kind were broken um, and degraded by this radical innovation, as Burke saw it, this revolution that was the British East India Company. Um, so in, in 1783, Burke tries to reform the company by bringing it under the direct authority of Parliament, by establishing a parliamentary and an economic committee to oversee its affairs. Um, that reform falls short. Uh, so what he does in the late 1780s is that he seeks to impeach Warren Hastings, the governor of Bengal and the effective head of the East India Company, um, for what Burke sees as his high crimes and misdemeanors in India. There has been some argument since Burke's day that he perhaps chose the wrong target, that perhaps Warren Hastings was one of the better leaders um, of the British East India Company. But Burke rather focused on the system of arbitrary power that had been set up in India, that he thought was actually abusing Indian freedom and human dignity and British liberty there. He was interested in the character and the behaviour of the officers of the British East India Company, many of whom were very young men. He called them birds of prey, and he had a really interesting approach to the moral reform of those reprobates. Tell me about that. This is very interesting. So the birds of prey are young East India Company officers, really in their late teens and early 20s, who go over from England to India, um, often from the middle and professional classes, to essentially become rulers and leaders in India. Burke is really disturbed by this movement because he sees these young men as the future leaders of England. And what he sees them doing in India um, is acting in ways that are contrary to the British spirit of liberty contrary to the morality which he has been seeking to protect from an English constitutional perspective. So his immediate priority is to use these young men as the kind of uh, bulwark, if you like, of his reform agenda in trying to bring the company into a regular fashion under British morality. Um, the way that he tries to do that is he comes at reform from the perspective of the wrongdoer. Now, this is a very interesting thing that Burke does with his rhetoric, and it's an unusual way proceeding in politics. Um, normally when we're trying to cease a cause of abuse, what we do is we appeal to the suffering of the victims involved in that abuse. Um, we try to make an argument, or rather we try to make a plea based upon human empathy. And that is absolutely the right thing to do. It's, as Burke thinks, our first natural reaction is sympathetic and feeling human beings. But Burke does this strange thing. He comes at reform from the perspective of the wrongdoer. He tries to make an argument to these young British men 
that by doing what they're doing to the Indians in India, they are actually betraying what they have come to love, their own British choice of inheritance. That is to say, this English value that necessitates the restraint of arbitrary power. By doing what they're doing in India, they're actually acting in un-English ways. And so what Burke does is he tries to make out a moral argument that unites the empathy for victims to the integrity of perpetrators. He tries to see himself, if you like, as a bridge builder on the Indian question. He's trying to make an argument for how we can restore a broken relationship by getting the Indians to live more truly to their traditions of Indian freedom and by getting the English to live more truly to their traditions of the restraint of arbitrary power. So it's in this deeper moral sense that Burke is a reformer. He's interested in building up bridges between people where divisions exist. And that is partly one of the reasons that I think he's so useful for thinking about inequality and injustice in our world today. He offers us a kind of third way alternative, middle way, to dealing with conflicts of identity that's separate to a reactionary dogma that does nothing about the problem and separate to an identity form of politics that tries to assert difference rather than commonality and unity. Um, and that really emerges from his stance on India as a moral reformer, trying to build the English and Indians back to each other. Do we have any historical record of the success of that appeal to the to the young company officers? Any any letters or diary entries by the the birds of prey that to, to the effect that you know Mr. Burke has um, has convinced me to to be truer to my nature as a steward of the English Constitution? We don't have, from my as far as I'm aware, direct letters of that kind. But there is an immediate sense in which Burke is at least historically successful um, during the Warren Hastings impeachment or the impeachment of Warren Hastings. Um, his arguments attract a grand spectacle from the English public. You know, in the early days of the impeachment, there is a real sense that the British public is starting to change its perspective on what the British East India Company is being allowed to do in India. Um, one of the reasons that the impeachment fails um, is that Burke, in a very unlucky sense, has the rules of lower course applied on the impeachment process. That is to say, many of his moral arguments, many of his rhetorical arguments are shut down by a need to be kind of more granular. Um, in the legal arguments that he makes, just because of the way that the, the trial is constructed. Um, so in the short term, the, the impeachment fails. Warren Hastings is acquitted on all charges. Um, so in the short term, Burke fails. And that's this kind of quixotic, tragic feature of his life, that he takes the right stand, but in the short term, people don't hear it. If I can just make the point, however, I do think that Burke's arguments, these reformist arguments and trying to bring over British youth and trying to make an argument for how British liberty is being betrayed in India do get taken up by later reformers within India. I think there's a really strong case to be said, for example, that Mahatma Gandhi, probably the greatest independent movement leader in India in the 20th century, had some affiliation with Burke. Um, in 1909, when he writes Hinswaraj, um, Gandhi makes this very subtle and original point that sounds a lot like Burke, that nothing is going to change in India unless the British live up to their liberal inheritance, unless they see the need to restrain their own abuse of power and live more truly to themselves, and unless the Indians are able to take back their tradition of freedom. Now, there's no historical evidence to suggest that Gandhi did directly read Burke. He did engage with the English thinkers and with English lawyers and constitutional thinkers. But I think there's something to be said for the fact that the argument that eventually works through the activity of nonviolence in India in 1947, which Gandhi is a proponent of, has something to do with the early moral arguments made by Burke. So Burke certainly got his diagnosis and his response as to the best course of action for achieving reform in India right. If we 
take a, a sort of big picture look, though, at, at the malaise that Burke is responding to in the British East India Company, you know, the, the corruption of governance by money and influence, the, the effects of individual and corporate greed, that all has a very modern look to it, doesn't it? And it makes me wonder what Burke would make of the present-day state of English conservatism, as emblematised by the modern British Conservative Party. I mean, there's an interesting question of what conservatism even means in, in 2022. Do, do you think that Burke would, would recognise Boris Johnson and his supporters as conservatives, and, and would he see them as responsible stewards of the British constitution? I don't think that he would. Um, I think that everything which Boris Johnson embodies, and certainly his government following him, seems to have been... Uh, characteristics of bad government and of poor leadership, which Burke would have called out throughout his entire life. So, for example, Burke was a big believer in the need for political leaders to act as stewards of the English constitution. That is to say, to see themselves as existing in a sacred trust with English institutions and the English people. Um, that means that, that English leaders, leaders in general, no matter which parliament they belong to, um, ought to see their leadership as exemplary. By the way that they act, by the integrity with which they act, they actually shape and demarcate and restrain and honour the dignity of the English constitution, of these institutions that have been handed down to us from former generations. Um, Burke thought that we had a responsibility to hand those institutions on better to future generations than we inherited them. And I think that Boris Johnson's um, government, certainly the prorogation of Parliament in 2019, which was later deemed unlawful by the British Supreme Court, um, is an example of a lack of care for English constitutional prudence and certainly for the principle of inheritance that Burke so believed in and cherished. Um, there's another sense, I think, in which Burke would have not seen Boris Johnson as a Burkean. You know, we think about things like Partygate and the problem of integrity, the lying that we have seen coming out of Number 10 Downing Street. Burke believed that personal integrity, that private conscience in office, was the foundation touchstone, if you like, of public dignity. Um, he says in Reflections on the Revolution in France um, that when men of rank sacrifice all ideas of dignity to an object or an, and an ambition without a distinct end and work with lower instruments for lower ends, the whole composition becomes base and lower. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in the English Tory party. Um, we're seeing how one leader's appeals to populism, um, to division, confusion and deception actually taint the entire British picture, picture, the very fine fabrication of constitutional and democratic manners, which Burke thinks that it is the duty, the first duty of a statesman to try and preserve. If I can just make one more quick point, um, and this goes to Burke's commentary on modern politics today in every country. It's not just about conservatism. A leader like Boris Johnson thinks about politics as Machiavelli, and this is a point that John Gray has made before, the philosopher and thinker. Um, he sees politics as a combination of fortuna and will, um, that a great man, a leader, seizes on the moment and is able to hold on to power and exercise authority by sowing seeds of division and deception. Burke entirely rejects that vision and conception of politics. He says that the true principles of politics are those of morality in March. For Burke, politics and morality are not separate enterprises. They are one and the same thing. And so therefore, everything that a leader does in politics, their ability to tell the truth, to act with integrity, to respect institutions, to act with, with common decency, compassion um, and morality, all of that goes to the heart of what a nation is about and what a human being is about too. Um, politics is the dense medium in which morality actually has to play itself out and be made meaningful. And I think that he would look at the modern day British Tory party 
um, as failing to do that. There is the question, though, isn't there, of, of how effective a Burkean approach to reform would be in modern British politics or US Republican politics for that matter. Because there's something about his approach to the reform of the British East India Company that seems idealistic. You know, he's essentially appealing to the better natures of this group of corrupt, power-hungry aristocrats. And I don't know, there's something about that appeal that seems very 18th century to me, you know, arguably Mm -hmm. not up to the task of 21st century politics where things have just become so tribal, so polarised. Do you share my my pessimism, my cynicism, if you like? I, I do share your suspicion. Um, I think that it's very hard to make out a coherent Burke in philosophy in the modern day because Burke's conditions are very different to ours today. Um, what I do think has happened is that the problems of modernity, which Burke was diagnosed in the 18th century, have come to be the causes of our present discontents. Right? So Burke says that this myth that you can progress the human being infinitely. This myth of unbridled growth in terms of markets that are devoid from the need for necessary restraints to ensure social good. Um, all of these come together to create a picture of division for Burke um, and for an inability to connect across, across common lines of decency and respect through reform. And that is why he's so wary of them, uh, particularly in the French Revolution. These have become our common problems today. They are what have polarised our politics. Um, particularly through an avenue, if you look, for example, at, at big tech. Um, why is Burke relevant? I think that he's relevant because he makes an appeal to individual leaders. Um, he says that unless people step up according to principles, unless they act with respect and decency, the entire edifice will fall through. And so when we think about the better angels argument, it may be so that we're not able to bring over every resistor. Um, that the entire problem cannot be solved using a Burkean approach. But what I think it can do is inspire good men and women to step up in association and try and champion the values of institutions. And I do think we are seeing that today. For example, in the British modern Tory party, the fact that we've had, you know, a no confidence vote so thinly um, come through in support of Boris Johnson is partly a testament to that recognition. It's partly about politics, but it's also partly the recognition of MPs like Jesse Norman, for example, who is an author and a philosopher um, on a book about Burke, standing up and saying, this is contrary to what I see as proper, true and dignified conservatism and the traditions of the English constitution. So even in Burke's own day, his own appeals to leadership um, fell through, but he would be the first to say that there is no one quick fix or easy answer. Um, There's no magic button that we can press to save our society um, from the threat of arbitrary power. What we can do is empower and inspire good women and men to try and step up and restrain that power. And I think that that message, no matter what era we are in, is one worth hearing and listening to. Jack Jacobs, he's a writer and podcaster based in Adelaide. And that podcast is one that I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in political and institutional reform. It's called Beaconsfield, which is the name of the English town where Edmund Burke spent the latter part of his life. And it's available wherever you get all your other podcasts. And this has been The Philosopher's Zone. You can follow us via the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me again next week. Bye for now.